Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to the Chills at Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Chloe Cooper-Jones. Here's a bit about Chloe. Chloe Cooper-Jones is a professor, journalist, and the author of the memoir, Easy Beauty, which will be the main focus of our conversation today. It was named a best book of 2022 by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and was a finalist for the 2023 Pulitzer Prize in memoir. She was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist in feature writing in 2020. She is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, a Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant recipient, and a Howard Foundation Fellow. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. And um, you know, congrats on the most recent of your two Pulitzer Prize nominations. How does that feel? I know you, you know, we don't we don't write for awards, but Pretty awesome, right? How's that feel? It was nice. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I keep making the joke that, um, although it's not really a joke at this point, that I would ultimately like to lose the Pulitzer in every category. And that yeah. that would be, because now I've lost it in two categories <laughs> in three years. Um, and I thought maybe it's actually more impressive rather than winning it. Mm. It's more impressive to lose it in like 10 different categories. So oh. that feels like the better bio note but um Hashtag no, it's goals. yeah <laughs> yeah it's nice like the the pulitzer announcement happens and it's sort of you, you get it, everything is like it gets ripped off like a band-aid because they they yeah. do the live stream they don't tell you nobody knows anything ahead of time mm-hmm. they announce the finalists and then they say the winner all in one breath so Whoa. You're a finalist for you know maybe two seconds and then you <laughs> find out that someone else is one you know but um so there's no there's no ceremony to go to. There's no uh-huh. nerves. There's no waiting. There's no. It just is like oh oh okay that's a good piece of news and then your day <laughs> kind of continues. So it's it's a lovely did, thing. I like. Did it. Have you like on the Zoom for like your live reaction? No 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 oh, no okay. they okay. don't no they that. it's even, okay. the first time I didn't even know it was happening and I was giving my son a bath and mm. this was in 20, April 2020 and. I just started getting texts that were like, there's some Pulitzer news and I had to uh, Google it and search for it. And, uh, uh, and then, yeah, you just, you find out like everybody else. And this year was, I was on the couch watching TV with my son. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. It's just a, it's just a nice, funny surprise, um, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. That's awesome. Your your memoir part two is going to be the banality of the Pulitzer Prize announcement or something like <laughs> on the couch in the van. Uh, it's not, the- yeah, because it's like you know people typically win awards in some sort of fancy gown, and that's fine. Mm. And maybe someday I'll get to do that. That'd be yes. I, that'd be great. But there's something kind of beautiful about, um, you know, I, something I'm really proud of is like. 
Um, my for my paperback cover of Easy Beauty, um, my paperback just came out in April, and there's a picture of my son and I on that. And mm. you know, also on that cover is like a little seal from being in the New York yeah. Times, you know, best of the of the year but then now there's also a little pulitzer seal and mm. it's kind of an amazing feeling for me as a mother to have this image on this book cover of like my son myself but also mm. my accomplishments and what i've been able to make um of my career and and make with my mind and with my artistic um drive and desire mm. and so there is something kind of like more profound to me about you know, becoming a Pulitzer finalist while also giving my son a bath. Like that's yeah, a little bit actually yeah. more meaningful to me than, than being at a big, you know, fancy party mm. or something. Although I'll take it. If someone wants yeah. to give me an award, yeah. <laughs> I'm not turning that down. I'm just saying it's, it's a, yeah. <laughs> to have that, those two parts of my life so deeply interwoven is very special. Mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. Is, um, is there like, I'd be interested to see like some sort of kick or some sort of boost in sales after the Pulitzer nomination, right? I mean, the book is not that old. I wonder if that's a thing. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, mm. I have, uh, I have some insulation against such things. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to, um, I, when my, when my book was coming out and we were preparing, you know, we're starting to press and starting to think about, you know, how to launch it into the world. I made a list of things like very tangible and I got very granular in this. Mm. Um, I made a list of things that I could control and things I could not control. And I made a promise to myself to really completely separate myself from what I couldn't control. So I was mm. like, I can put my absolute best effort into representing the book well, or trying to do the work of promoting it yeah. or really enjoying being on tour and talking to people, but I can't control reviews, external response, mm. sales. So I asked my editor and my agent to just give me every, every ounce of work um, or put me on any task that I could actually have influence over, but then to mm. not tell me anything else, you know, so they don't send me reviews. They don't send me, any sort of external response. I don't look at sales um, just because it keeps me from the work. You know, it's, yeah. that's not the work. The work is, is elsewhere. So the more energy I can put into one side of things, but I hope, I mean, I hope the poets mm. helps help sales, but I have no clue really. <laughs> Now'd be a good time. Maybe shout out um, where to buy it, where to buy easy beauty, you know, You're in Brooklyn. The uh, I know this weekend they're putting up. Um, one of the libraries are putting up lyrics of Jay Z songs. So oh yeah, I saw maybe, that. Maybe you can get the same thing. Maybe you're going to be plastered on the the walls of the library. But any, you know, cool. any, any local places um, to buy your book? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in Brooklyn, tons of places, tons of great places. I mean, my book is available for sale anywhere that sells books, um, which is nice, but. In Brooklyn, my two sort of hometown bookstores are Books Are Magic and Greenlight. Uh, I'm a little, you know, almost equidistant between those two. And mm -hmm. I'd say probably 50% of my bookshelf is books <laughs> from one of those two bookstores. But yeah. I also want to shout out, I grew up in um, a small farming town in um, in Kansas, Tonganoxie, okay. um, Kansas, but the town that 
people know that's closest to it is Lawrence. Mm. And so probably 40% of my bookshelf is books that I've collected over my life from the Raven bookstore in Mm. Lawrence, Kansas. So I think of the Brooklyn bookstores and the Raven both as my ride or die hometown bookstores. Nice. That's Jayhawk territory, right? You better believe it is. Hey, yeah. Okay. And the okay. Jayhawks won the national championship in basketball the night before my book came out, which I saw as a very coincidence. Good I think not. Yeah. I was watching wow. the game and then launched wow. a book. It was very exciting two days for, for a Kansan girl. <laughs> I, I just, I just seeing that smile. I feel like we could probably talk for an hour about Kansas basketball, but. Oh, easily. That's for another day. That's for now. <laughs> All right. That's the All next right. podcast. Yeah. 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 Seriously. Well, so you were talking about growing up in Kansas. I'd love to know about your early relationship with reading and writing. I mean, were you, your, your father, you, you talk about in Easy Beauty was a, is a, is an aesthete. Am I saying the word right? I mean, very much into beauty and and knowledge and philosophy mm-hmm. and obviously your, your father's daughter in so many ways. But I wonder just about like kind of your formal education, your formal reading kind of like, you know, what maybe was given to you that you love, what you kind of explored on your own and just your relationship with the written word. Well, my parents, both my mother and father, both were very serious about art and beauty and, and the way in which you could fill your life with aesthetic pleasure and joy. And, Mm -hmm. um, but they came to it from really different perspectives. My mother is somebody who, is capable of sort of stitching aesthetic pleasure and beauty into every aspect of our, of our lives. So Mm. her farmhouse is, you know, filled with, you know, beautiful pieces of art that she's collected. She is a very creative cook. Um, She finds so much pleasure in building like gorgeous gardens all around Mm. um, our farmhouse. And so my mother really showed me this way of living a life that is like immersed in in art and beauty and and a sensitivity to how you draw um aesthetic pleasure into your your just daily existence. My mm-hmm. father was more interested in the way that art and beauty could be something that you made in in the sense that like you you went into your interiority and you wrestled with your, you know, singular particular mm-hmm. genius and then put it into something like a song or a poem or a book or a piece of philosophy. And he was very serious academic and and a voracious reader. I mean, I I still to this day don't know if I've met anybody who could read as much and as widely um, as he could. And our house was filled with his books and he was constantly reading to me. So I had these two influences. You know, I grew up in a farmhouse uh, in Tonganoxie, Kansas, very far away from a metropolitan area that would have, in, you know, imparted a lot of value of culture or something. Mm-hmm. But I had these two parents that were incredible at imparting that to me. And I think my earliest memories is my father, both my parents read to me constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father would really enjoy reading things that were like pretty advanced, um, for my age and then having long conversations with me about them. So I remember him reading like Plato's symposium and then Mm. talking, you know, when I was really young, maybe when I was 
seven, eight, or nine, and then having long, long conversations with me about certain sentences from the symposium or talking about love, which is the subject of the symposium, or reading Socrates, you know, um, and his apologia and talking to me about bravery and what Socrates is arguing for and in what is, um, you know, the, the apologia is what is his defense speech when he's put on trial. And also reading poetry to me constantly, playing music for me constantly, and and really wanting to develop the part of my mind that was so deeply connected to literature and the arts. And then I also think a huge influence was just growing up in the country, you know, surrounded by 40 acres of farmland and being an only child as well. And so having a, a very rich interior life was sort of a survival mechanism for, mm-hmm. for a, you know, a sensitive, <laughs> sensitive, uh, nerdy child in, mm-hmm. in the backwoods um, of Kansas. And so I spent a lot of my childhood sort of walking around the woods and dreaming and thinking and making up stories and reading next to a cow pond and, mm. um, and writing stories. And um, that, yeah, that was really the fertile sort of soil, so to speak, for my creative life. You just kind of give the skeleton of it in the in Easy Beauty, but his his children's story, that's I love it. Yeah, it's beautiful, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, about beauty. I mean, you'll 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 read it when you read the book, folks listening. But um again, just kind of you kind of give the skeletal, but it's like, ah, that, that really kinda of, I feel like uh gives the reader such a good idea of him, you know, the idea of travel and exploring, but also, you know, coming back to that to where it all started and and kind of finding beauty in the in the everyday. Um, who were you reading? What were you reading, especially in those younger days? I mean, was it a, not escapist literature? You're talking about, you know, a rich interior life. Mm-hmm. Was it kind of like, I can travel with books? So you're reading about Narnia, yeah. you know, what kind of things oh, were you yeah. reading? I mean, I read a lot of things. And I think I was just having a conversation with uh, my best friend, Kate, about this, like, the the sort of classic childhood books and some of them are really rich and and exciting and give you this sort of you know big picture of a world outside your your own but some of them are just like fun trash and i think like mm-hmm. we we should talk about the fun trash that we read as kids because those things are are, are we sometimes talking sweet valley like are we talking sweet valley? oh totally i mean I, there's like babysitters club sweet valley yes. high I, I mean i would say those were not i definitely read those mm-hmm. those were not quite as as um, big, they didn't play quite a big as role, a role in my life as like scary things. So I read, um, you know, I went from like R.L. Stein, that was a big one. And then, um, uh, Christopher Pike, which is oh, like, yeah. I don't know if people remember Christopher Pike. And then I just went through a massive Stephen King phase, like sure. starting in junior high through early mm-hmm. high school. This is funny to me now. Cause I actually am such a weenie. Like I hate scary movies. I get <laughs> scared so easily, but Damn. As a child, you know, or young adult or adolescent or whatever, I was like, yeah, and you're fascinated by death and gruesome things, what can happen to a body, what can happen in a life. And sometimes those are like, you know, the Christopher Pike novels would really mix in a lot of like teen romance too. So it was like mm-hmm. sort of sexy, sort of scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was like, it was so fun. Um, so, you know, I I just devoured, absolutely devoured those books. but. 
I think sort of, yeah, the more formative things were my dad read a lot of philosophy to me and a lot of Greek mythology. I think that's pretty common for kids. A lot of kids go through like a big Greek mythology phase. And I had the Edith Hamilton Greek mythology books and, um, and yeah, a lot of history and, I had, there was this book called the devil's arithmetic that I read like hmm. maybe 25 times, which was about a girl sort of going into the Holocaust. So I would read all this sort of like, um, you know, young adult literary history, hmm. you know, fiction, you know, whatever. And, um, Harriet, the spy, of course, I feel like every hmm. writer, these are very cliche books for a young writer to love, but <laughs> I love, I think I read Harriet, the spy, like four or five, you know, times a year, maybe. And, so, yeah, those were a lot of the things that I was really excited about. And then when I started college, getting I got very obsessed with writers that I thought were doing interesting things with language. So I was reading Diane Williams and Mark Richard and Cormac McCarthy and mm-hmm. um, Lydia Davis and just mm-hmm. uh, Barry Hanna and like really thinking a lot about uh, pressure and the kind of pressure you could put on individual syllables and um and that i think is is really present in easy beauty which is a memoir and a narrative but i think a lot about the language and in you know every aspect of the language in that book one of the one of the trips you take in the book is to indian wells for the you know the tennis uh tournament and mm-hmm. you know federer roger federer is a big focus so i'm, I'm immediately <laughs> thinking of david foster wallace yeah, he wrote about you know was a was a tennis player in his day and wrote about Federer and did you yeah. did you read him at all Did you um get into not just him but like a lot of nonfiction as well Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I I definitely have read a lot of David Foster Wallace's nonfiction and admire his nonfiction tremendously. And I think you know his sports writing um is so exciting to me because. Mm. I, I love any sort of writer who comes into a really defined field and just takes a, a, you know, a different angle. So the Federer piece is great. I love that piece, but um, he has another piece. I think it's called like Tracy, Tracy Austin, my heart or is Mm -hmm. breaking my heart or something like that. Yeah, where it's just about Tracy Austin being so boring. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> essay. And and um yeah, I think that uh his his work is is valuable to me, maybe not as much as in terms of influence, like I think I'm much more influenced by somebody like Janet Malcolm. Okay. Um, or even John McPhee, who I think John McPhee sort of has, well, both Janet Malcolm and John McPhee are able to take uh, process writing to a place that's pretty phenomenal. And my easy beauty is not process writing, but I've definitely learned a lot from, you know, John McPhee has a whole book about like oranges and canoes Mm -hmm. and um, pine barrens in New Jersey, like things that I wouldn't necessarily think I would want to know about and yet he figures out these ways to make Hmm. incredible narratives that feel very literary in their quality both janet malcolm and john mcphee really taught me how dialogue could like beat you know dialogue that you're quoting that's nonfiction. so it's you're not inventing the dialogue but how Hmm. you could use dialogue 
even in the nonfiction context to make something that feels very narrative and thrilling and, and yeah. like fiction. So huh. um, I don't, I think definitely for influences, the, those distinctions between poetry, fiction, and nonfiction are, are pretty, pretty open. Like those boundaries are very open to me. Yeah. Anybody, you know, these days, very, very, I mean, you've mentioned some contemporary, but, you know, very contemporary writers, you're just like, man, can't wait for his next article or her next book or. There's, there's so many, so many, the, there's a book coming out in, let's see, we're, we're talking on July 15th. This mm -hmm. book comes out, I think maybe on Tuesday called country of the blind by Andrew Leland. So by the time this yes, you know, yes. podcast is out, people will. Future guest. He's a future guest. Excellent. Yeah. He, I think that book is amazing. I'm doing his book launch in Brooklyn in um, August 2nd. And I, I oh. blurbed that book. I got to read it really early. I mm. think it's an incredible blend of really deeply reported work and mm. beautiful prose and very personal uh, memoiristic writing, but he just threads the needle so beautifully between the self and talking about disability and specifically blindness, but also doing a ton of really excellent investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. So that book I think is poised to be, I mean, I think easily one of the best books of the year and certainly the best, you know, one of the best memoirs of the year. I, you know, clearly haven't read them all, but, um, but I feel very strongly about that book. I can't wait for the world to, to get to experience it awesome. in the last year. Um, you know, Rachel Aviv's book, Strangers to Ourselves, I think is quite, quite brilliant. And uh, I always read Rachel's work. I love Jasmine Chan's novel, School for Good Mothers. That was mm -hmm. such a fun novel this year. I mean, it's actually a very depressing and, <laughs> and dystopian yeah, right. novel, but, but I think is written um, in a way that I, yeah, I just loved and admired so much. Yeah, I'm blurbing a lot of books. There's, there's just... Yeah. I know it's an right? Yeah. Yeah. The books are really good yeah. right now. Yeah. I wonder in, in growing up high school, college, even younger, like if you felt represented in what you read, you know, all the different <laughs> subcultures that make us up, you know, living in rural areas. Pronunciation hopefully is correct. So sacral agenesis. Yeah. Sacral agenesis. Yeah. Okay. Sacral. Thank you. I guess it's a two part question. The disabilities and i know it's a term that's you know just kind of morphed over the years and has been more mm -hmm. correct and less correct i wonder how you feel the usage of that in 2023 and then just in general again growing up in kansas not in new york city or boston or la where all the, you know a lot of the books take place mm -hmm. just different ways you felt represented in what you read um growing up i did not feel represented in anything <laughs> growing up um, no period no period <laughs> there's just i mean yeah like Disability in film is abysmal still, although maybe maybe there's tiny advancements um, in the last few years. Uh, certainly nothing nothing good growing up. Disability was almost completely absent, and if it was present in any sort of narrative that I read or experienced in other media forms, the disabled character was often an object of pity or was used as a sort of tool for inspiration for able-bodied people making like the able-bodied experience, the real experience 
and the disability experience as a tool for for uh, showing an able-bodied person how to live um, and appreciate their own lives and luck. Uh, I think the only exception to this, and I've talked about this film a little bit, and maybe someday I'll write something about it, is I saw the film Coming Home when I was pretty young, hmm. uh, which came out in the 70s, and it was directed by Hal Ashby and has um, Jane Fonda and... Um, uh, what's his name? Jane Fonda and his name went right out of my head. Angelina mm. Jolie's dad. Oh, uh, John Voight. John Voight. John Voight, okay. who I met okay. once um, in a strange uh. sort of sort of in the rain in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> and it's that's a film about somebody who gets injured in Vietnam and comes home paralyzed and and still has a lot of agency. But but for the most part, whenever I saw any sort of disabled character, they yeah had no agency. They were tragic inherently. They were sexless. Um, mm. They did not have some sort of romantic arc or any sort of real personality character arc. And they often died at the end and they died to you know make other people feel more real. So none of those things felt like they were representing the wholeness of my life, the complexity of my life. And I also felt very intensely the uh, experience of other people looking at me or treating me in my life as though I was living an inherently inferior existence or slightly less whole or complex existence. Mm -hmm. um, and especially around things like sex and romance, but also just around having control over my own decisions, you know, people... Mm -hmm. It was hard for people to trust that I was capable of certain things, even when I would tell them that I was. And interestingly, my mother, um, she got cancer this year. She's doing really well now, but oh. she she went through chemo and um, it just this year. And, and as she was getting sick with chemo, there were people in her life who knew her really well, really close to her that started like overriding her decisions and started like, mm. you know, butting in a little bit too much or telling her what to do or treating kind of infantilizing her yeah, yeah, yeah. in her illness. And she said to me like, Oh, this is, this is actually the first time I, I really understand fully like what your life has been like and the way that people want to take away some mm -hmm. agency from you or don't trust you or, or can infantilize you. And I think that's a very common experience for, for disability. Mm -hmm. Um, and just thinking, talking, because you brought it up about the language. I mean, the term uh, disability is a great term. It's a term that does not need to be negatively coded. The problem is not with the term, although certainly I would have chosen a different one. Um, but the problem is that people have such a negative coding of it. Hmm. Uh, but it's an important term for a lot of people in the community because it's the term that classifies me under certain protections under the law. Sure. So the American Disabilities Act, the ADA, guarantee or, well, is meant to protect me from certain forms of discrimination. So legally, it's important that I claim that term mm -hmm. uh, if I want the incredible sort of, you know, protections that other people have fought so hard for, you know, other mm -hmm. activists before me have fought so hard for. So I, I claim that term with a tremendous amount of pride. You know, some people want what we call like disability first language or person first language. And that is very dependent, I think, person to person. So some people want you to say like, 
you know, I'm a person with a disability or Chloe has a disability uh-huh. versus saying Chloe is disabled or she's a disabled, but you know, I, I've personally liked both of those. I don't have, um, I have no problem with disability first language, but mm-hmm. that tends to be a question I try to ask, um, others or allow other people to answer for themselves. Okay. So, yeah. I appreciate that answer. I'm going to forget his name, but there's um, one of the anecdotes from the book. Easy Beauty is is a friend who mm-hmm. was, you know, who always wanted to help you and say, you know, hey, I'm going to get you out of the car. And you're like, no, I'm good. No, I'm, I'm going to help you. And I do believe, you know, well-meaning, but you really I can just, I, you, you, you paint the picture so well. I can just see like the the tension rising. You know, you really mm-hmm. just like, no, I, I, I got it. And just really not being heard. Right. I yeah. got it. I can do this. Where's the line for, you know where you don't have to be somebody educating hundred percent, you know, you don't have to educate everyone. Cause I could, I would assume that would be incredibly taxing, but somebody who I think means well, but is ignorant, I guess, in the true sense of the word, like doesn't know. Mm-hmm. So I guess where's that line between like, you know, you know, someone like, like you would have to be an educator and that's just too much. And, you know, I guess it goes to the whole idea of like movies and books that either maybe don't have any representation whatsoever for disabled people versus having negative I know it's a big kind of generic question. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I I actually think the answer is pretty simple. Like, um, I don't really think there's any problem with offering anybody in this world your assistance Mm. and saying, can I help you with something? Do you need something? Can I offer you this? The problem is just simply when people don't listen to the answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where the dehumanizing, you know, aspects of, of, these like good intentions that turn into a form of prejudice, that's the line. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are times, you know, I think that it's interesting because we were just talking about Andrew Leland's book and he has in the introduction, he talks about with blindness that um, people will sort of ask these very insulting questions of like, can you feed yourself? Like who dresses mm-hmm. you? Like, you know, and those questions are, are just displaying a real lack of imagination. And I think Mm. that that's a very prevalent thing in the lives of of disabled people, or certainly in my life, is the amazing limitations of other people's imaginations of my Mm. abilities. So there are times where, you know, like I've gotten onto an airplane, taken the, you know, the whole airplane ride, and then someone comes up to me and says, do you need a wheelchair to get off the airplane? And I, I think, well, did you, how, how did I get on there? Did you not see me get on the airplane or like, did you not think I had a plan for getting uh, off the airplane or, you know, same thing, like I'll be on the subway and getting, you know, have some groceries or something and be carrying up the stairs and people will be like, do you know, no, like take the, take the elevator or do you, how are you going to get up the stairs? I'll carry this bag for you. And it's like, do you not see that I have a plan here? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've gotten onto the subway and I'm going to be able, I can figure out how to get off the subway. And so there are times where that offer of help just simply is you're, you might be exposing your, your complete inability to imagine the wholeness of someone else. But I would say for the most part, I don't find it offensive if somebody offers the help. The thing that I find to be really hurtful is when someone doesn't trust my response. So if you Uh say, Hey, would you like me to carry those groceries for you? And I say, no, thank you. And then you go, no, really, really, really. I don't, I think you That's should where you let it go. Let me, right. Yeah. 
And yeah. so that scene with my dear friend Judd, who mm-hmm. I love so much, whose birthday was just um two days ago, he, you know, I think he's a really great and luckily he he's very game to be um, you know, lovingly called out in this in this way. <laughs> and I also don't come off, you know, perfect in this scene either, but I think it was a really great example of showing this this difficulty around good intentions that turn into sort of dehumanizing actions because yeah. I was pregnant at the time. So that's another layer of sort of disbelieving my agency. Mm-hmm. And he was really, he loves me. He loves my unborn child. He he wants to help me. He wants to protect me. He wants to be chivalrous and, and um, deeply, deeply supportive. And he was giving me a ride. He would give me a ride home pretty often from teaching and and he wouldn't let me walk up the stairs to my yeah. own apartment by myself and after the you know 10th time or whatever that this happens where i'm explaining to him over and over again i in fact walk up these stairs every single day like i might be slower than most people or i might have to grip the railing tighter but i can do this um you know he couldn't really trust that he kept seeing mm-hmm. the worst happening and he kept negating my responses and negating yeah. my agency to the point where I, you know, explode on him. <laughs> right. Poor Judd. Um, but it was important for me to give that example in context of like, this is a man who means well, loves me, wants the best for me, but in that particular moment, can't see me as a real person, can't trust me. Mm-hmm. And that is that's, you know, that's unacceptable. Like that's not a, that's not an okay way to treat people. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm mixing parts and in the book, this, you were not talking about this particular incident, but I don't, I don't think it was Iris Murdoch. I think it was maybe the woman who talked about the beauty of a palm tree. Yeah. Lane scary. Yeah. Right. Who, but, but you you, just, now you're talking about imagination, imagination, imagination. I, I thought that was such a key point in the book about like, let's say like um, encountering beauty, um, processing beauty. It's just, I guess imagination obviously is the opposite of ignorance in many ways, Mm. but it's just like opening, like being imaginative enough to think that, to think a different way. Mm. I think, again, I think imagination is so interesting in the way they use it here. The book is called Easy Beauty. And in some ways, I mean, I think it revolves around, I, I counted maybe six trips. Maybe I don't know. Right. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Count. yeah. Okay, quick, Something quick, like quick. There's what's twelve. The... Well, there's twelve chapters, yeah. and each chapter takes place in a different, different city. But one of them is Brooklyn, right? Yeah, there's something like that. Six you know, ten <laughs> trips. I should. <laughs> but starting, I starting almost in the middle is okay. So I don't know if you set this up as like a big reveal or not, because I but I was like. I might have let out an audible. Whoa, it was so cool. So you go to San Siro, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, the stadium yeah. in Milan, uh-huh. right? And I'm like, all right. She, you wrote about some about eighty thousand people, you know, capacity. I'm like, all right. She's gonna go see, you know, AC Milan, the, <laughs> the soccer team, and it was to see Beyonce. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Easy Beauty is the title, and when you were presented with the possibility to go to to see Beyonce in New York, I think it was too late, right? It already passed, and whatever. Yeah, no. I sort of rejected it and right. I was acting as though I didn't want to go. And I was sort of right. seeing it as like, 
you know, an experience, the truth of course, is that it was an experience I feared already excluded me. So I was trying Mm -hmm. to pre, you know, exclude it from my life, you know, before it could, yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go, but yeah, go ahead. I'm going to break up with her before she breaks up with me. Totally. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, what what a, but it's like, was, so it's easy beauty. Would you define that as something like it's it's cliche it's been done it's not it's not hard fought you know like your dad your dad wants to travel and go to you know to east asia and go all over the world and you know and meet all kinds of different people and keep it moving like they say in new york because you're going to learn that way it's a hard fought victory and it sounds like you know you have a lot of that as well is that the key what what i guess what is the opposite of easy beauty is it it hard beauty difficult beauty so i mean the the phrase easy beauty and difficult beauty come from this philosopher, Bernard Bosenket, who I talk about in that Beyonce chapter. And the the thing is, is like the way you're talking about it is the way that I sort of problematically and incorrectly interpret the difference between easy and difficult beauty. Mm-hmm. So Bosenket just simply says we should be aware of these differences in the way that we process beauty here to sort of basic crude categories there's beauty that this is what he's saying he doesn't put a value judgment on them he says easy beauty is just beauty that arrives to our senses immediately so mm-hmm. in fact the great majority maybe of our day's pleasure comes from easy beauty looking outside on a you know on a sunny day or or going to the beach if you can and seeing the ocean quickly and and appreciating it or seeing a rose or hearing a simple rhythm that makes you want to dance. And, and these are all things that, you know, ideally we, we would give a lot of credit to and value to, and, Mm -hmm. but they just come to us. They come to our senses instantly Uh, enjoying an incredible meal that the second it, you know, lands on your Mm -hmm. tongue, you're like, Oh, this is great. I don't have to think about it. I'm just, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm happy in the experience of, of pleasure. Um, that comes from, from our senses, which is the term aesthetic means, you know, is, is based in the idea of our senses, what appeals to our senses. So Mm -hmm. this is what he calls easy beauty. And then he says, but there's this other type of beauty called difficult beauty that requires more time to process more patience. Sometimes it requires education. Sometimes you have to learn about a thing before you see its beauty Sometimes you need a great teacher to guide you through and explain what's beautiful about this thing. Or sometimes you need this thing that he calls width. Um, And it's sort of a technical term that he's using in this particular context. And he says, there is some types of beauty that are so sort of massive and overwhelming that when we are facing them, we, in comparison, feel very small. And we see the sort of tininess of our own life Mm -hmm. and he says it kind of takes a specific sort of person to be able to sit in the tininess of their life and the sort of increased insignificance of their life in the face of some gigantic massive difficult form of beauty Mm -hmm. and see it as valuable like sit in that tension and complexity and see it as valuable so that might happen to us like you know, looking at the the massive mountain range and for Mm -hmm. a moment recognizing, wow, the enormity of these mountains are beyond my comprehension as like a tiny little human that's going to exist 
in a speck of time in comparison to the natural world. Like mm. there can be a feeling of, of deep sort of like conflict within us or, or resistance to wanting to feel that our own lives are small, but there's this other way in which we can look at the mountain range, feel the smallness of our lives and feel the world widening mm -hmm. and be in awe of that. Right. So Bozenkett just really wants to draw our attention to the fact that beauty can arrive in these different ways. And part of the problem that I, I make it for myself because I see my own body as being a source of difficult beauty and not immediate easy beauty is that I choose to devalue easy beauty and see it as like, oh, that's easy beauty is just things for, you know, uneducated people or it's trite, it's cliche. But that's not true. Like a rose is not, you know, it's like yeah. a rose is beautiful. A sunset's right. beautiful. Like right. to turn your nose up at something just because it can arrive to our senses swiftly, mm -hmm. that's just hurting myself. So part of the journey of the book is to learn how to embrace both of these forms of beauty, but mm -hmm. more specifically within my own relationship to my son and mm -hmm. um, and the sort of immediacy of the beauty of of my life with him that I couldn't fully trust or, or couldn't at the beginning of the book, like embrace as deeply, you know? Yeah. So the last, you know, this is no spoiler, but one of the last scenes of the book is just me walking home with my son on a particularly beautiful day in Brooklyn in October and, and just valuing the beauty of this like golden hue of, of this October sun and the little beads of sweat on yeah. on Wolfgang's face and just um yeah finding great beauty there that doesn't need you know a, a whole bibliography to 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 unpack mm. so yeah that's the tension of those two terms how old is your son now he's 11 oh my gosh I am so impressed by how well you write about motherhood, parenthood. Foibles is not even the word. I mean, they're, you know, some of the very serious fears that he has. And I mean, you know, in the world that we're in, it's <laughs> it's such a nerve-wracking thing to be a parent. It's always been a nerve-wracking thing to be a parent, right? Yeah. But I, I've I've tried with very, very little success to write about being a father, being a parent. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, because it, I always feel like mine comes off as so cliched. But yours doesn't. Yours is, and I'm sorry to keep using the word banality, but you know the. I think the last couple words of the book are like this. The I want to say spurgle, the the burbling of the coffee pot, something like that, right? Just oh, yeah. those, those daily things yeah. that you know we try not to take for granted. It's it's so hard to write about that without coming off as cliche, and, and you don't. I think that's because you feature a lot of the the difficulties, um, and it's, it's very honest. You, you know, there's big pharma, there's big tech, like. You know, this is a safe space. Did you get bullied by Big Beyonce to like write? <laughs> no. You know that you know how the Beehive gets, right? I mean, you really did enjoy the show. But I write about her. Blink so twice lightly. if you blink twice if you didn't enjoy the show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, they, I I I write about her so lovingly. I know. I, I know. Beyonce fans, I think, understand. I mean, yeah, yeah I write about her Beyonce's radical presence and and being the way in the moment, it, right? Yeah, being with her in the moment and and. Also, I write about like being part of a, you know, 
like massive wave of human joy. Like I had never experienced anything even close to this. I'd been to stadium concerts and I'd been to different shows in my life, Mm -hmm. but the kind of joy that she is capable of bringing (laughs) to a crowd of 80,000 people. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's not to be missed. This was, you know, I have this student who says, oh, you should go have an epiphany at a Beyonce concert. And I'm going, I don't want to do that. That sounds ridiculous to me. And then I go and I do have this epiphany because to be caught in an energy wave like that Mm -hmm. of people just like so many thousands of people so happy. And then for her to be willing to give us her total presence, like, Mm. I don't, you know, I don't think it matters if you like her music or not, or if you're interested in, in her as a cultural figure or not. Like, I just think to be. It's visceral, right? Oh, it's so visceral. And it reminds you why, why a life with others is crucial. Yeah. This kind of feeling you cannot have being a little isolated island unto yourself, which is my natural instinct is withdrawal, aloneness, interiority, privacy, separateness. And because I'm so deeply oriented in that way, I kind of need like to be yanked out of that by big, big joy. (laughs) And Beyonce, (laughs) man, she's a she just creates big, big joy for people and um, no, I think, I think the, the Bayhive and I are on the same team for sure. <laughs> All right. No harassment. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> that sound, sounds like an incredible show. The individual experiencing beauty you talk, you know, I, I get that right. As, as a reader, as an aesthete, you know, like you talk about with your father mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of your negative experiences, you know, even at the, at the Milan show, you know, you, you thought about leaving, right? Because it's like, oh man, I'm going to be in a space where I'm not going to be able to see very clever way that you got, you know, down, down, down below and all that. And also the kind of infant, what's the word? Infantilizing? Oh, infantilizing. Yeah. That, that, that came up there, but you, you know, you finally got a, a, a good, an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And also with with Roger Federer, right? You this was when you went to Indian Wells, and you didn't consider yourself to be a tennis expert. Didn't know didn't know much about it. And after a while, you were just able to let yourself go and just be like, "This, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, I get it." The, you know, it's maybe the hipster thing to be into Federer, if you will, and everyone likes Federer. But there's a reason why everyone likes Federer. Yeah. My, my long way of getting to a question too is pop music. Obviously, mm-hmm. pop is short for popular. There's a reason it's popular is you write about philosophy, but it's not like you're not writing about the Stoics for 400 pages. You're not writing about Aristotle for 400. I wonder about like how you were able to integrate philosophy, you know, when there's so much like pop philosophy around now and so much like short form and you made it into a long form. Like how are you able Mm -hmm. to put that into a quote unquote like mainstream pop book? Well, I think that, I was just trying to be very authentic to how my particular brain is actually processing the world. So, you know, my, the details of my life don't really matter, but maybe there's something about the bigger human questions that I'm trying to ask in this book that matters. But if I try to come at these bigger human questions, like how does, how do we change? How do we become more present? How do we become more integrated in our lives? Um, How do we seek beauty in ways that makes us better agents of our community? The big Iris Murdoch question about Mm -hmm. unselfing, like those are all, I think, big, relevant human 
important universal questions. And that's really the the goal of the writing. But of course, you you one must come at those questions in a specific and particular way as possible. So I just really tried to put my authentic, my authentic brain on the page. Mm. And my authentic brain is, um, you know, I studied philosophy. I was reading a lot of philosophy. So that was part of how I was making connections. There's references to poems that I was reading. Mm. There's references to Beyonce because I was going to a Beyonce mm. concert. There's Federer because I was watching tennis. There's conversations with other philosophers, um, other like, you know, big, big sort of cultural icons, but also with my mother and my son and mm. my friends. And so I think that what was crucial to me was not to do some sort of like, let me explain the philosophy of this to a general audience. Mm -hmm. What was crucial to me was let me actually genuinely impart the texture of my life and the nuances of my mind and how it processes the world. The goal of the book is not to explain what Aristotle says about, you know, the weakness of the spectator or something, or what Bosanquet says about easy versus difficult beauty. The, the goal of the book is to deeply and sometimes subversively counteract this commonly held view that the disabled life is somehow inherently inferior and less mm -hmm. worth living. The only way this book has value in the world is if it helps somebody like me or helps somebody with a body like mine or in my community. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean help them in the sense that like I'm empathizing with them or we can empathize with each other. What I mean is, could this book actually improve the conditions of their lives by arguing fully and for you know almost 300 pages that the disabled life is actually quite whole and extremely well worth living and i think the only way that i could do that is to say here is an entire life i mean and i don't mean here are the details of my whole life because it, sure. it actually takes places the the book the present of the book is only 18 months so it's yeah. not that I'm giving this the the scope of my biography but i am giving the wholeness of a mind and that includes how I'm thinking, how I'm processing, the faults that I enact in the world, the mistakes that I make, the ways in which I'm a good and bad mother, the ways in which I'm a good and bad daughter, the ways in which I hear my mother, but don't don't interpret her lessons deeply enough, the way that I can grow and and shift and um and be a person by the end of the book who's, yeah, finding great awe and beauty with just the sound of the coffee being made for her in the morning. And that is all aiming very specifically at undoing some of the really bad cultural beliefs that surround disability. Mm. So the philosophy aspect of it is about authenticity to really how I think rather than I have this big goal to like teach everybody about, you know, you know, it's just you can't know me without me sort of sure. <laughs> occasionally referencing Kant, uh, hopefully yeah. not obnoxiously, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just happens sometimes, you know, sounds Federer, Kant, they, they go hand yeah, in hand. Yeah, of course. Sounds like a pretty good so, life, like talking with other really smart people, you know, over a drink at a bar in Brooklyn, you know, a lot of, a lot of the book is that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that is, that is a lot of the book is the like, life of the what mind. it be like to have a beer with me? Like, it's yes. like this. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I mean, maybe this is an obvious statement for a lot. Of, you know, a lot of us take trips based on other experiences, but a lot of yours are more direct. Can't even imagine the the pain, the rage, the upset you write about in the beginning of the book, where uh, Jay and Colin are, mm-hmm. um, you know, colleagues slash kind of friends, maybe at the beginning, mm-hmm. and you guys you're talking, and they, especially Colin, said some really hateful things, really really ignorant things, and you write about quote something had shifted in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe that's kind of what leads to your Rome trip, either directly or indirectly. Um, I wonder if you could say say as much or as little as you want about that yeah. that opening and those really hateful, ignorant conversation um, or comments that come up in the conversation about you talked about worth and and ethics and all that. Yeah, I was just having a beer with my friends and um, who are both philosophers as well and um, who are in my same PhD program at the time. And we were talking about a bioethics case that has to do with IVF and deafness. And it's a very famous bioethics case. And it's one that I taught um, as a bioethicist. And Colin just makes an argument that you know, deafness would disqualify, you know, any ethical parent would find deafness as uh, such a disqualifying factor that they should immediately have to abort their child. And that in fact, all disability lowers the, you know, it, it, it lowers the quality of one's life so profoundly that all disabled lives should be, you know, detected in utero and, and aborted. And the thing is, is like, that's not a new argument. That's eugenics. Like, you know, Colin does not invent eugenics in, mm-hmm. in Easy Beauty. He is, in fact, just repeating a very long, um, you know, part of a very long conversation, a very historical conversation and one that has deep, deep roots in the United States. And so and it's also you know, there was a study just, I think, in 2021 that showed that, you know, 80 plus percent, I can't remember the exact number, but they polled physicians in 2021 or 2022. They polled physicians and said, does disability in any way affect how you see the quality of your patient's life? And over 80 plus percent said yes, that they mm-hmm. found disability to be something that made life less worth living. And I think a lot of people hold that belief. I think we, I think every single one of us, and this is something we should probably really investigate within ourselves, hold some eugenicist beliefs, has some sort of idea that certain qualities are less valuable or should be edited out of society. And it's, it's just everywhere. So the fact that Colin says that that was nothing new to me. I'd been hearing an argument about my body somehow making my life worse or something like that. I, I'd been hearing that my whole life uh, and vehemently disagreeing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, thinking my life is actually pretty, pretty cool. But the difference was that in that moment, it was the first time that I realized that when I was faced with such dehumanizing sentences or, or theories that what I tended to do was retreat into this sort of isolated mental space that I call the neutral room Mm -hmm. and just sort of wait for whatever ugliness I was enduring to pass or whatever pain I was experiencing to pass. And it was the first time that I actually caught myself 
doing this and then kind of sat in this retracted mental space and thought like, oh, maybe if I can't figure out how to have a language to advocate for the worthiness of my life and to enter a moment like this and argue, um, then maybe I'm actually complicit with these bad beliefs mm. about my body. Or like a body room within a room, no? It's like a meta huh? thing. It's like a room within a room. It's like a yeah. room within a neutral room. Like yeah. Realizing, yeah. Wow. Love yeah. It's, it's like I got, yeah, I got outside the neutral. I got to walk around the neutral room or something, uh. <laughs> see myself inside it and go, hey, maybe you should not yeah. do this. Like, yeah. but knowing that you shouldn't do it or knowing that you need to enter these conversations with, um, you know, more advocacy or self-worth, like knowing it doesn't make it so. Mm. And the book is really situated deeply and intentionally in my struggle to get out of that self-effacing and frankly harmful, mm. you know, retracted mental, and I don't mean harmful to me, I mean harmful to other people, um, retracted mental space and to be more present and I very intentionally write the book just in that struggle. So it doesn't end. It, the book ends right where I'm getting a clue about how to be. So am I correct in drawing the link then between, so there was the incredibly dehumanizing um, language used and then the trip to Rome and it's like, okay, so I'm yeah, sorry, backing up a little bit too. I think you just call him the indifferent man. I don't know if he's given a name in the book. No, he's yeah, the one. He's, yeah. Is he given a name? No, just the indifferent man. The indifferent yeah. man. So obviously, you know, we're calling a lot of people. There's a lot of mansplaining to say the least. And he's he's just saying, you know, no, there's there's an objective beauty. Like, you know, there's a scale one through 10. And, you know, I'm only drawn to the most beautiful, most beautiful, beautiful of all. And it's very, it's objective, either yes or no, right? And well, then, go ahead. Yeah, I think he's less like, yeah, I mean, I guess, it, it, I don't know if he, he, it's less that he's like, beauty is objective. I think he's more like, I'm very aware, you know, he's saying like, I'm very aware that the media has told me or like socializing forces have told me that there's a certain type of woman's body that's beautiful. And mm -hmm. I am influenced by that. And I think, I think he's, you know, a lot of people really, you know, don't like him in the book or, or find him to be really repulsive. And I find him to be difficult, certainly, but in a way I find him to be really refreshing and mm -hmm. honest because all he says is what is absolutely 100% true, which is we live in a society that feeds us a version of what is beautiful and what is attractive and what is sexually appropriate and what mm. we should find sexually desirable. And then we see that messaging over and over and over and over and over again. And we, each one of us who are alive are in some way influenced by that messaging and then make massive life decisions hmm. based on that messaging, meaning like who we date, how we spend our money, how we think of our own bodies, our own self-esteem, what we surgery, plastic surgery, what we bought, you know, clothes we buy, the ways that we give our precious time and life, you know, hmm. and some of us may be more influenced than others. Um, some of us may be trying to regain some control over that messaging and reject it. But we all hear it and we're all in some ways in relation to it. And the indifferent man just says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm buying in and I want a hot woman and I want her to look like what the magazines tell me. And and I know what why I think this and I can't change it. And who cares? Yeah. So yeah. is that is that 
the way I wish the world functioned? No, but I I admire his honesty and, mm. and I don't think he's quite as evil as people want to make him out to be. I think he just has more radical honesty than mm. a lot of people are willing to have with themselves. So you you go you go to Rome you to see Bernini and the sculptures and the Greeks had talked about beauty is I guess in this case objective it's a proportion you know there there were people who had you know, almost literally right done like measurements of like the statues and what was considered to be beautiful I remember hearing a a, a study a long time ago done you know like about symmetry in the face. Yeah. And apparently like Denzel Washington was like, you know, had the greatest rate or whatever. And wow. Hard, it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to, hard to argue that one. That's a pretty good looking yeah. dude. He's, even though he's like 97 years old now, he still looks like he's 22. But anyways, um, and in some ways you were kind of looking for an event like your dad would, is that safe to say? Like you were looking to be accosted by beauty. You're looking to be just like, boom, here it is. And that there was one, uh, you know, one sort of beauty, um, but also that the beauty at the Borghese, am I saying that correctly? The Borghese Gardens, the yeah. Borghese Gar- Gardens was was generative to you. And I think that's maybe where the palm tree um, uh, example is used where, um, scary, scary, is how you pronounce it? Elaine Scary, yeah. You were talking about how she, you know, something like a palm tree it's like, okay, we know it's beautiful, but you you forget about it. And then you look at it again. You're like, you know, that is beautiful. I'd, I'd put it away. I guess I'm my long winded way of getting at what, in what ways was, were you approaching beauty as you went to Rome and maybe how you changed your mind as, as that trip happened at the Borghese gardens and, and looking at all the beautiful art. Yeah. Well, there's that. Tr- and then the palm trees come up in Lake Como, which is like Como is, Lake Como, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, is, you know, sort of almost offensively, beautiful and pleasurable right you said you cursed out loud when you saw yeah i mean i really would too and and because it's just the weather is incredible and the water is gorgeous and the Mm -hmm. sun is you know like outlining the waves and and there's all these wild rosemary bushes that grow everywhere so the air smells this is beautiful like herbal scent and i was Mm -hmm. walking in rose gardens and these lemon trees are everywhere and and after a while you're just like oh my god it's enough like Uh It's like looking at these mountains and you're like, <laughs> ah, I'm just overwhelmed by how powerful the, yeah, the, the beauty in, um, in the natural world can be. Uh, but I think that, you know, I'm very influenced by at, at the beginning of the book, by my father's sort of desire to be chasing mm. the sort of like finer edges of things like, the sort of thin edge of experience where like something tips from mm-hmm. from safe to thrilling or like exciting to you know dangerous even and like the edges of of what's safe or expected and mm-hmm. and sometimes really extreme experiences of beauty can do that they they can have like a physical almost like arresting sense you know our we say things like oh it made my heart stop or my cut mm-hmm. my breath caught in my throat or my heart was beating and pound you know like right these are all ways in which i was thinking about beauty in this real height of feeling um and the prop and that's great i love those experiences i still seek them i think the problem was that um you know my father was less good at appreciating and i too and this is something I try to figure out in the book, like the kind of beauty that 
is quieter. Um, mm -hmm. The kind of beauty of domestic spaces or the kind of beauty you make with another person over time and commitment and, mm. um, and those feelings of beauty don't always feel like this exciting adventure and this chase and this like mm -hmm. awe and this, you know, so balancing those two things are coming to terms with those two experiences of beauty without losing either one of them mm -hmm. is a real tension and, and drive of the book for sure. Yeah. Right. Cause it's gotta be a balance, right? I mean, you, you don't want to lose that that thirst, that hunger for beauty, for adventure, because you're going to find more things than you would originally, but there's also going to make you lose, lose out on some of those. Yeah. The, the dangerous type of things that don't necessarily have to be done. And sometimes are hurtful to, like you said, others or, or yourself. Absolutely. I'm so interested in reading the article that may or may not have existed, which is about, about quote unquote, dark tourism. You talk about the trip you take to Cambodia mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, you talk about, again, there's no words that can absolutely describe the breathtaking nature of the violence. I mean, one quarter of the people of Cambodians were, were killed in the, you know, the killing fields and the late seventies and Pol Pot and all of that. I mean, how do you even, you know, when you talk about the Holocaust, I mean, the numbers are just astronomical, right? Yep. And so you went there with, with, yeah, that, that really interesting idea about really investigating dark tourism and what, what draws people to museums and um, you know, there's the museum of tolerance and, and there are two of them or Holocaust museum in the United States. That's not what you write about. And those are different, but you know, people go, I've been, and there are a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of education involved, but when you talk about in Cambodia, I mean, these are the, the killing fields. These are, you're seeing blood and, and brain matter, you know, from kids yeah. on the trees. Yeah. What what drew you to Cambodia? Did you and I, I mentioned in how you write about the like kind of like the commodification of of torture, the commodification of tragedy. Yeah. And also if you can weave in the uh I'm I'm, I'm his name is slipping my mind, but that great um tuk tuk or taxi driver that you met there. Yeah, Chetra. Yeah, Chetra the Tuk Tuk. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. So I wonder yeah. just about what drew you to Cambodia and what and how your your experience was changed about what you kind of came to write about or what your initial thoughts were, what this what the trip was going to be like. Well, I initially was writing about it in the context of some questions that Aristotle asks about our relationship to tragedy. Mm -hmm. And he talks about and this is often in, in philosophy just called the paradox of tragedy and and a lot of other philosophers have written about it but it sort of begins with aristotle who's talking about you know going to you know the theater and watching oedipus with your time off like why sure, sure. why on earth would we ever <laughs> want to spend our leisure time hmm. watching you know tremendous Final tragedy destination or whatever yeah, violence, um, the worst possible things we can imagine happening to other bodies. Like, why has that become a source of pleasure and 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 a rich, fertile soil for so much mm. artwork mm. to emerge from? And he has a couple answers to this. One is simple. He says humans got to know. Humans want to know stuff. Like, that's what it is to be human. We must know. And we don't just want to know happy things. We want to know all the things. So he says, we want, 
we have a desire to look upon even the vilest creatures in death and, you know, or, or that sort of innate desire to crane your neck at the car crash that you're passing. Mm-hmm. We, or the existence of the, you know, 84 saw movies or whatever, however many of those movies. I think it's 86 now. Yeah. 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 It's like, well, what's that all about? Sure. Um, it's about humans wanting to know things like we just have to know. And it, it, we don't really have to put any moral judgment on that. We can just accept that human nature is, is uniquely driven by um, knowledge acquisition. So we want to know about death and we want to know about suffering and we want to know about genocide. And so that's one of his answers. But then the other answer that he has is if we can look at these things in safe contexts like the theater or a novel or mm-hmm. music or horror films, um, then we can experience a healthy set of emotions and put those healthy set of emotions in the right place. So the emotions that he um, specifically names are pity and fear and that we can have, and this is a term that he uses in the context that we now use it for the first time comes from Aristotle, which is we can have catharsis. So at that time, catharsis was literally uh, referring to the purging of wounds. It was a medical term and he was using it in a metaphor that now we use this metaphor all the time a cathartic mm-hmm. experience one that makes us purge instead of the you know pus from a literal wound mm. um the negative emotions in our in our hearts we can cry and um we can feel pity and fear but we feel it for oedipus you know a fictional character um or we feel it for you know Mr. Saw victim or whatever, you know, a fictional, (laughs) a a well-paid actor, I hope. So this is the appropriate place to put these negative emotions because the other option is to purge pity and fear onto my child or onto a stranger in the street. And those are less appropriate places to put negative emotions. So he thinks that these can be, you know, our desire for tragic circumstances to understand them and be surrounded by them um, have actual positive outcomes. And so other philosophers have written about, you know, he writes about this in, in just in the theater and in poetry, other people have written Schopenhauer writes about this and mm. you know, talking about sad music. Um, my mentor, Noel Carroll uh, writes about this in, in horror films and a really seminal and excellent book. Um, about why we why we watch horror and I wanted to write about it in what was becoming a much more popular thing which was dark tourism so I was just sort of jumping onto this lineage of philosophers sort of exploring the paradox of tragedy but in different contexts and saying you know what what's new about this context what can it teach us about the paradox of tragedy I think that yeah the I went to Cambodia because one, Cam- a lot of Cambodia's GDP comes from um, mostly mm. white Western tourists coming mm-hmm. to look at the absolute, you know, one of the most horrifying genocides um, in modern history. And they built a lot of infrastructure and roads to help people go look at, at these things. And I was very curious about how a country explains its own pain to other people and to foreigners that are coming, coming in to experience it. 
And that's that was the project. And I still think there's a lot of value in that project. I think the project sort of went in, you know, to the side in part because I had some I was coming at it as though I could be an impartial observer, which, of course, you can't be. So I had some of the wrong framework for for really exploring these questions. But that framework works in in the context of easy beauty because Cambodia becomes a place in which I find sort of the worst parts of myself and my own ability to use problematic assumptions about tragedy or other people's lives or to reduce other people's lives. Like I find my own ability to do that to others. And that becomes a really important part of the book because the book is often about other people writing their negative narratives onto me. But something that's so crucial is that there's nothing I'm, there's nothing I'm calling out in someone else that I can't also call out in myself. Like I'm a human, just like anyone else. So I'm capable of using really negative narratives um, to dehumanize others. And it is equally unacceptable when I do it. And the book is intentionally very relational in that way. It doesn't say I'm some sort of protected special human that isn't capable of hurting other people. No, I'm I'm profoundly capable of it. And I too want, you know, as I ask other people to see me as more whole, I too need to ask myself to be better about the same things. And Cambodia becomes a place in which I really, I see the full cruelty that I too am capable of, um, of experiencing you know, expressing, I guess. There's, there's so much there. I mean, the idea that, um, that your driver, when he's like, well, you know, it just used to be, you know, the killing fields that now are tourist place. Like they just used to be fields that, you know, buttressed up against, you know, I don't know, a, a tire shop or a restaurant, you know, now they're these, these multinational companies came in and they've you know commodified mm -hmm. it and made it financial. And there's just yeah. so much there about, about capitalism and, and kind of like, the perfect experience. I was just so struck by even like, you know, you, you and the other visitors seeing what you saw. And then it's like, well, I also have to eat and you go and there's a, there's a beautiful like garden area and you eat a sandwich, you know, it's just like, just, Oh yeah. You could get like ice cream sandwiches. Right. There was like a guy with like a cart or something. Like that, right. Yeah. Skulls. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that your, your driver, I'm sorry, tell me his name. Chetra. Chetra, you know, he was, he was young enough that he didn't, he didn't go through what happened with the killing fields, but you know, traumas and generational traumas. And mm -hmm. I think of students I've had who, you know, come from Cambodian parents and, you know, how do you explain to the next generation and just the the horrible things men have done to each other. There's, there's an incredible scene or scenes with at the uh, Sundance festival, right? Mm -hmm. so, you know, the movie festival and how do you, how do you pronounce it? Is it Link, Linklage? Peter Dinklage. Peter Okay, right. The the English. famous. Oh, okay. Pardon me. The famous actor, and um, you know, meeting him and and all the conditions surrounding that, and some of the the bad and some of the good experiences you went through. the The last part of the book is mainly about another trip, and it's to Miami, and it's <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily like action packed. I mean, it's like a hotel and the family, and have such respect for your mom. I mean, you know, my mom's a first and second grade teacher. I love your mom was a third grade teacher. Yeah. But just really kind of in so many ways, putting things into to context, you talk about the book takes place over 18 months. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty short term, but you and your mom were really able to look back at things and, um, you know, she contextualizes your father and, yeah. and you ask her questions and she tells you things and you learn so much. 
Um, I wonder why you chose to end it there. And it, it worked, it worked, it worked. It's so successful ending with not Rome or Milan or the Beyonce concert or, uh, you know, a crazy chaotic conversation in one of the bars, but more, you know, again, with the, the coffee pot and mm-hmm. time with your family and, yeah. you know, you know, your mother and such. Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, the book is uh, mapped on structurally to a quest narrative and a quest mm-hmm. narrative is one in which a hero leaves home and, and mm-hmm. seeks, seeks treasure of some sort, but quest narratives don't end until the hero returns home with new knowledge. So part of, part of the decision-making is, is, well, that's authentically what happened, you know? Um, But then the other part is if I'm in a dialogue with craft and I'm thinking about really crafting this as a true, you know, work outside of just details of my life, how does it map onto a quest narrative? So it's like, I could have, you know, I could have ended it at the Beyonce concert on this high note of, of great realization and joy, but I think it's actually really important to see how someone tries, even though, you know, I don't, I don't end the book in like some place of like, oh, I've got it all figured out, but I do end it in a place of, well, I'm trying to bring this home to Mm -hmm. specifically to my son. And my also in the quest narrative is the hero always encounters mentors that that guide them. And there's no greater mentor in the book than my mother. And I think in a way you could say like Beyonce is sort of one of those mentors and Federer is like a mentor and, Mm. you know, there's monsters in the book and there's obstacles and, you know, and there a lot of those monsters and obstacles are actually me. Um, Sometimes they're, they're other people, but they're mostly me. Um, But the, my mother is like, you know, she's the ultimate mentor in the book. She's the Gandalf or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. um, and she's the hero of the book. And that's, you know, the scene where we're on the beach in Miami and she sort of recontextualizes not just my father and, but, but really her way of seeing me. Cause I, throughout the book, keep referencing this idea that maybe my father wouldn't have left if, if I hadn't been disabled and maybe my mother felt so much pressure or fear about my body and um, you know, being the mother of a of a disabled child, and I was born in Bangkok, away from our family. So, to be to be yeah on the, you know, to be almost totally alone in in Thailand, and then later in Nepal, and I just thought, well, she must have been terrified. This must have been a horrible traumatic experience for her, and maybe my dad too. And that's why my dad, you know, it's like I'd I'd held on to my own terrible narratives, which is yeah. a a running theme in this book, very intentionally, and um you know, my mom and in, in that moment in Miami just, just shifts those things so powerfully and really allows for a lot of this new knowledge that I bring, bring home to my family to actually exist. So, so much of this sort of thing I'm searching for deeply, deeply searching for, I don't find it in Rome. I don't find it in Cambodia. I don't find it in California. I find it just with my mother in conversation mm-hmm. with my mother. Yeah. And then, and, and then the book ends with me trying to, to bring that to my, my own son. So yeah, that just felt like narratively and authentically the right, the right mm-hmm. arc for the book. 
two two beautiful scenes, beautiful in their own way. I love when your mom is uh, pointing out how many nails needed to be done for the boardwalk. Uh-huh. Right? Like, hey, someone had to have done that, right? We're enjoying ourselves, but there's a beauty there and the architecture and the process. And I love when your son is just so blown away by the magic trick. <laughs> he, I also love when he's like being so cynical and yeah. like saying like, ah, you know, that's, that's that trick is not really you know good. You know, this is how he did it or she did it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. That was so cool. Last question for you is, you know, you talked about catharsis. Um, I mean, you wrote, uh, you know, you wrote about Orta Ramsey. Did I get the name correct? Ramsey Orta is his name. Ramsey Orta, excuse me, who was the one who filmed, you know, the 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 police murder of Eric Garner. And, yeah. you know, he's selling little Lucy cigarettes for, you know, and he ends up losing his life. And, you know, mm-hmm. I can't breathe. And the whole, um, you know, movement that came from that. But just mm-hmm. all the ways that he that that um, Ramsey himself was was harassed and all that. I mean, and then of course writing and excavating your life. These are deep, troublesome. You know, going to Cambodia and, and the 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 genocide there. How do you keep yourself um, happy? How do you keep yourself calm? How do you how do you not let that drag you down? Or maybe that's not even the right question. But how do you deal with such you know? hugely tragic in some cases situations mm-hmm. that you write about yeah i mean both the both the book and that you know the article that you're referring to at ramsey order which i worked on for a year i went to visit him um in various correctional facilities for a year i mean that very emotionally taxing difficult yeah. things um several moments in which i wanted to quit both mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. or felt deeply overwhelmed or fearful um, and yeah, lots of crying someday, you know, so like, like there, I don't think there's any way of like, um, avoiding the difficulty of it. Uh, and I don't think there's any magic bullet for staying. I don't think one should stay happy through all these things. I think one should feel the full weight of the emotions of these experiences, whether it's going really far externally into, um, the life of another person and the the social context that has created some real tragedy um, in the case of the Ramsey Orta article or going very deeply into oneself into some of the most sensitive, painful um, moments that, that have shaped me. I will say that I was raised by um, who myself and, and my friend always joke about this, that my mother is the queen of perspective mm-hmm. and it's true. She's, um, she's just unbelievably gifted at saying a thing that will remind you, you know, like to keep, keep a great perspective. So it could be something as small as me having a really painful writing day and feeling really lost and upset about, you know, whatever thing I'm doing and her being like, well, this is what you said you always wanted. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> or like, this is, you know, this is, this is the dream. So <laughs> you got to write okay. it or this is what, you know, this would be a dream for other people, or this is like a bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of insulting to, it's not that she doesn't want me to have those emotions or that she's trying yeah. to shut them down. You, you can have those, you can cry and you can feel pain and suffering. You can even want to quit. But at the end of the day, it's important to take a step back and be like, this was important to you and you're going to do it. And it, there, nobody has promised you that it was going to be fun and easy all the way through. Mm. So you've got to 
ride, ride through it. And she, she throughout my entire life has been sort of a genius in, in this regard, <laughs> almost a, obnoxiously. So, cause mm-hmm. it's just like, God, ah, she's right again. Uh. Um, so I think that I, I have been given a tremendous amount of resources from her in terms of um, finding a way to see the bigger picture yeah. at the end of the day. So mm. that keeps me pretty happy, actually. So you're on a roll with these with these nominations. So much success, so much well-deserved success. You really Thank put you. yourself um, into the work in so many different ways. Where, you know, tell us what's coming up if you want, um, you know, where to find you online. I don't know if you have any book tours or appearances. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, social I'm, media. I mean, I'm on Instagram mainly. Um, just my whole name, Clay Cooper Jones. And yeah, I'm doing a really exciting event uh in bentonville arkansas of all Mm, places um, at a great bookstore called two friends um on july 28th so i'm really excited about that i did a paperback tour but had to cancel a few dates um because my mom got sick and so now i'm kind of making up some of those dates which is so fun because my mom's doing so much better so i can do it with a lot of joy and um, and while I'm in, ben- I'm, I'm specifically going to Bentonville and partnering with this other artist who his name is Maddie Davis, M-A-T-T-Y, Maddie Davis, but he's doing, um, he's a performance artist and a dancer and choreographer, oh. and he has a museum commission there. And so he's doing this incredible dance performance and he's going to, I did some work for that and he's going to come be part of this book event and so there's like this big cultural um cool exciting stuff that's happening in bentonville arkansas so if anybody's listening who's in the midwest i hope you'll you'll come and see either my book event on the 28th or maddie davis's performance at the momentary in the first week of august fourth fifth and sixth of august so is there a tie into walmart isn't that Walmart? We're not tied to Walmart. I feel like that's their world headquarters. I might be wrong. Maybe it's that ben- is where ben- that is that is what okay. Bentonville is famous for. Yeah, okay. there's all right. Walmart money in that town. Now they're famous for performance art. It's not going to be like a another showing of like the Marina Ab- Abramovich one, is it? Because that scared the heck out of me. Wait, the one. Yeah, no. Okay, good. No, although I do think this performance is is yes yeah, is very intense and cool, but no, um, not not nice. another rhythm zero. But no, the, there's Crystal Bridges is like a great museum that's there in the momentary. Mm. So Bentonville has some really cool stuff and I can't wait to go. I'm really excited about it. Well, thanks so much. I I just love talking to people who are so creative, so much about art and muses and philosophy and are obviously just really deep thinkers. And it's one thing to be a deep thinker, but you're able to put it into terms that us laymen and women can understand. So thank you so much for your time and continue good luck with your writing. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to talk to you. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Episode 197 was a conversation with Chloe Cooper Jones. Great luck to her with her continued writing. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will P-O-1, the digit one. 
You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. How can you help? How can you support the Chills at Will podcast? You can become a Patreon member. You can tweet and retweet and like and share episode notes and episode links. Tell a friend. Tell ten. Thank you so much for your support. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 198 with Sarah Thungan Matthews, who is the author of the novel All This Could Be Different, which was shortlisted for the 2022 National Book Award and the 2022 Discover Prize, and nominated for the Aspen Literary Prize. She is formerly a Roni Jaff- Jaffe Fellow in Fiction at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and a Margins Fellow at the Asian American Writers' Workshop. Her book, All This Could Be Different, is so good. That last line, though, woo! This episode will air on August 8th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Chloe Cooper Jones, whose work, like Easy Beauty, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 